0: It's all happening at the Politocrat Daily Podcast online store. And you can go there right now at the-politocrat.myshopify.com. Lots of good new items, brand new, designed by yours truly. So please head to the Politocrat Daily Podcast online store now. Thank you very much. Welcome to The Politocrat. I am Omar Moore. It is Thursday, February the 25th, 2021. On this edition of The Politocrat, the American left is dead. Do you agree that the American left is no more? Or do you disagree with that? I'm going to put forth my argument as to why I think it is dead. Why I think there really is no left anymore. I'll leave it for your consumption, your thought, and your opinion. Coming up next. oh my goodness me The Age of Aquarius The Fifth Dimension oh my gosh what a great group they were and that song of a certain age of a certain age if you are of a certain age you remember that song well and the video for that too oh my goodness The Fifth Dimension Age of Aquarius Let the Sun Shine In which is the second portion of that tune which is just fantastic You've got to listen to that. But this is not about the age of Aquarius or the fifth dimension. This is not about them. This episode is about the death of the American left. And it's sad to say, I think that song came out in 1969 or so, thereabouts. And at the time that song first came out, there was still, in my view, a genuine American left in the United States. There was genuinely a left politically that existed. It was a left. Now to define it, this is how I'm going to define it. That was anti-war, anti-fascism, pro-love, pro-freedom, pro-reproductive freedom. freedom, Pro-fornication, saying, you know, free love protecting the planet and the environment. That's what the American left was, defending people and empowering them with education and with food and sustenance and economic empowerment, self-determination. That's what the left stood for. That's what the actual left was in the United States. You have the Young Lords, a group that was really um, founded and comprised of a number of different Latino communities and other and other individuals as well. Puerto Rico, um, Puerto Rican influence. The Young Lords believed in protecting the community and uh, believed. And stood for anti fascism and anti war and all of these things that are actually positive. You had the Yippies, Jerry Rubin, and I'll tell you what happened to him and how he transformed himself in a few moments. The Yippies were very much anti war, pro love, pro peace. believing in freedom and justice and and love and respect of your fellow human being you had the students for the Democratic Society SDS with Tom Hayden back in the 1960s the famous or infamous depending on where you stand Port Huron statement that was a manifesto of sorts that Tom Hayden put together Tom Hayden passed away just about just under five years ago now They engaged in a lot of protests. Some of them turned out to be violent. Um, Not entirely all, not entirely SDS fault, by the way. Um, But certainly there was some violent protest. The police were the ones who were doing the vast majority of the violence. The vast majority of it. In fact, that story was told in, well, that led to the trial of Chicago 7, but of course there's a Netflix movie um, out now that, recreates a lot of this, by the way. I don't think the movie is that good. I think it's well acted in some areas, um, but I don't think it's a particularly good film. But that's a whole nother story. That's not why I'm doing this episode. This knowledge I was fully aware of before any movie came along. um, Because I was, oh my God, my age. I'm not going to tell you, but um, (laughs) I know of these things before a movie came out about them. But the point I'm trying to get to here is that you had a number of groups, the Black Panthers as well. Pro-family, pro-freedom, pro-life, pro-self-determination, anti-war, anti-racist, anti-fascist. These were groups, the Black Panthers, who believed in economic impairment and self-determination, protecting the family, they believed in education, they had education programs, they had food programs, they, they fed families, they fed communities in need, black communities in need in particular. They believed in a philosophy of nationalism and ownership of your own businesses, protecting the black family. They believed in giving power to the people in general. They believed in all kinds of life-affirming things that redistributed the wealth in this country so that you would have ordinary everyday people sharing in that wealth. It was more of a socialist function. That's what the Black Panther Party was. They were a socialist party. They believed in the equitable distribution of wealth and the empowerment of the everyday person. The empowerment of black people first and foremost, but the empowerment of any commoner, if you will, anyone who is discriminated against, anyone who has significantly less money, people in the uh, uh, poorer classes of society, so to speak. And it's so interesting because I know I'm not talking about movies too much, but Judas and the Black Messiah, Messiah, that movie that is now available on HBO Max for a few more, couple of more weeks, I think. Two or three more weeks. That movie catches some captures some of that too. But I certainly knew about the Black Panthers before that movie came out two weeks ago, I mean. But the point I'm making is, is that you had a genuine left. You had actual parties. You had people running for office in some of those parties or attempting to. I believe Bobby Seale tried to run for office at some point. I think he did. If I remember correctly, Bobby Seale was one of the founders of the Black Panthers, as was Huey Newton. Huey Newton was one of, I mean, look, Huey Newton, um, you know, my goodness me, these are iconic figures, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. The Black Panthers were founded in Oakland in the mid-1960s. I'm just doing this off the top of my head. I may have... The date's wrong. It could be 65 or 66. I don't remember exactly when it was in the 1960s, but I'm sure it was somewhere around there um, in Oakland, California, which is a hop, skip and a jump away from here. Some from across the bridge from here in San Francisco, that's what, 13, roughly 13 or so miles away from here in San Francisco. So it's literally 13 miles away, which is not all that far, not all that far away at all drive across the San Francisco Bay Bridge and you're there and within a few minutes from wherever you are in San Francisco but from from downtown San Francisco it's roughly 13 miles or so I mean you had all of these groups you had the flower power groups and uh, general. you had all other kinds of groups that maybe didn't have the big enough names you had Allen Ginsberg running around you know the poet um There was a real left in this country. It was a left that was so prominent that you had Nixon knocking his knees in fear. And you had John Ehrlichman making secret recordings with Nixon about the fact that, well, we don't want black people and hippies to start anything. So we need to flood their communities with drugs. So that we can dilute their power and effectiveness. They are becoming a threat. I'm paraphrasing roughly these, the nature of these recordings. And John Ehrlichman, I believe it was John Ehrlichman, admitted this or whomever it was in Nixon's inner circle, admitted this years later in an interview. That that's what Nixon and co were doing. So there was a real left in this country. You had J. Edgar Hoover in the FBI. He had been in the FBI for generations. I mean, he I think his leadership in the FBI spanned at least five presidents, if not more. And for over 40 years, if not more, J. Edgar Hoover ruled the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, with an iron fist. And his first order of business was to go after the left. It was so heavily concentrated. He went after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he went after Malcolm X, Medgar Gavin. He spied on all of them, and he had the COINTEL program, the counterintelligence program, where you would have people infiltrating the Nation of Islam, infiltrating Dr. King's groups, infiltrating. You know, all these places, SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. SNCC is the, by the way, is the student organization that was led by John Lewis at one point, And led by Stokely Carmichael at one point. Who later then became Kwame Ture. Neither of those two gentlemen are with us anymore. John Lewis passed away just last year, as you know, last summer. And Kwame Touré passed away... Um, I think some 20 years ago now or a little bit less, something like that. He's he's passed a little while back. And there was such a targeting of the left. There was a genuine left in this country and you had people supporting that left. The people that I'm talking about were angling for political power, but they were doing so on their own terms Because they were creating the political power in their own spaces, in their own communities. They commanded a lot of respect from people, even those who didn't like them. They, the Black Panthers specifically, were responsible for then-Governor Ronald Reagan of California to... Cancel and the California legislature to cancel open carry, to end open carry. There used to be open carry of guns in this very state here in California. But after the Black Panthers engaged in open carry and walked the steps of the Capitol building in Sacramento, California, and walked inside that Capitol building with their guns, they started to get arrested and Reagan said, oh, no, you don't. You're not going to get to carry guns in an open carry state. Not you black folk. So we're now going to say none of y'all, no one in this state, black, white or Asian or anything else, Latinx, none of y'all going to carry a damn gun, open carry. None of you. None of ya. And that's precisely what happened. Executive orders, legislation, boom, done. And there has not been open carry in California since. It's all right if certain people, white, have the opportunity to carry their guns in public January 6th, 2021. But black people, ooh, no, we can't have you doing that. Brown people, ooh, no, we can't have you doing that. My whole point is, is that the left in America was tremendously effective in the 1960s. It was actually a, and this is an overused term, but it's true, a counter-cultural backlash to the oppressive 1950s and all that had gone before. People were taking stands, even some of the politicians were a bit more left The so-called mainstream politicians like the JFKs, even though he wasn't left, he was pushed a little bit that way, even though he was still a very conservative Democrat. As was RFK, although RFK got pushed a lot further to the left, thanks to Dr. King, thanks to a number of other people. This was the thing, you know, and they became more left leaning in a way and not with the same philosophies as the Black Panthers or the Young Lords or the Yippies or the SDS or SNCC or SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which, of course, you know, is the uh, organization headed by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But my point here, dear listener, is to just say that there was a real left in this country then. There was a serious left. You had the women's movement coming out of this too. The renewed and reinvigorated one. I'm not talking about the suffrage movement from the 1920s or before. I'm talking about this new movement that came up really late 70s into the early, excuse me, late 60s into the early 1970s. You had Flo Kennedy and Bella Abzug and you had Gloria Steinem and you had a number of other people number of other people, women who spearheaded this. This is part of the left as well. They are part of the left. I don't know if they would characterize themselves as left. Then I don't know. I don't want to even speculate, so I won't. But all I know is, is that in my view, and, and for my money, if not yours, anybody who was pro-peace, anti-war, pro-freedom, pro-people was left that's how I view it whether it's the Black Panthers, the Yippies, the Young Lords, the SDS SNCC, SCLC I could go on and on with the acronyms but the point is that I am making is that back in the 1960s there was a genuine uniform left And what was the right at that time in the 60s? Well, it was Nixon. (laughs) You know, it was the Republican Party who at that point had become what the Dixiecrats were. They incorporated themselves. The Dixiecrats became Republicans. All of those Southern Democrats who were the inherently racist folk, those white politicians then, they ended up morphing into Republicans. Strong Thurmond and all of those individuals. Robert Byrd and all of those people who were had memberships in the Klan, certainly Robert Byrd did and he later apologized and expressed deep regret he renounced his time in the Klan he became a US Senator, as you know he was a House member, I believe at one point, then he was a US Senator for a number of years and uh, became a Democrat again or you know, and um, talked about his Dear friend Ted Kennedy, when Ted Kennedy passed away in the early 2000s, it was during or just around the time that Barack Obama had either come into office or was running for office or um, during his first term. And it may have been 2005 or six, So it would have been just before Barack Obama ran for president. And I'll never forget that speech. Robert Byrd, who was once a grand wizard of the KKK, is on the Senate floor and he's saying, oh, Ted, my dear friend. And that is, he literally, he was crying for his friend who had passed away, Ted Kennedy, after a long battle. Uh, And I forget which health um, issue it was for, for Ted Kennedy. And you know, you gotta, listen, I can't get through here talking about this with you, dear listener, without mentioning Chappaquiddick which happened in 1969. Um, Again, I'm recollecting this off the top of my head. And I hope I don't have the year wrong. I think I don't. And this is something else, because again, you had this confluence of movements. You had a confluence of movements. And Ted Kennedy was in the breach at this time because you had... JFK, I just want to set the scene for a few moments. Yeah, JFK had been assassinated in 1963. He had RFK who was assassinated in June of 1968. Two months before that, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, April of 1968. And as you know, um, in February of 1965, I just did a podcast episode on this just a few days ago, you had Malcolm X who was assassinated. And so what you had was this group of people. Medica Evers was assassinated, I believe, uh, um, maybe earlier in 1963 or in 1961. And and in the breach was Ted Kennedy. And Ted Kennedy um, completely tanked his reputation, at least for a few minutes, with Mary Jo Kopechny. And for those of you who do not know who Mary Jo Kopechny was, you will have to Google that name. And if you don't know how to spell it, just type in Chappaquiddick. and if you don't know how to spell that, I'm going to spell it for you. I think it's C H A, double P A D I, Q U. Oh dear, I D I C K. Oh gosh, Chappaquiddick. but it, it's spelled the way I pronounced it, which. The pronunciation, at least, is accurate. (laughs) And I normally would pride myself on my spelling ability, but I'm just so wrapped up in trying to get to a point here that I have completely become unsure (laughs) about the spelling of Chepaquiddick. But the bottom line is, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Ted Kennedy uh, had lost control of his vehicle, or so he said. And I don't know why I'm recalling it from his point of view, because I really shouldn't. The bottom line is, is that the cliff nose version is this. The car drove into a creek or a lake or whatever it was in a river, the Chappaquiddick River or whatever. And in Massachusetts. Yeah, it wasn't Connecticut, it's Massachusetts. And the car went under with Kennedy and Kopechny in it. And Kennedy managed to get out of the car. And made no attempt to really save Mary Jo Kopechny. And she drowned. And he was not charged with anything. Not a single thing. Which, while it might shock some of you, it will not surprise any of you. So... You had that going on. Then you had the backdrop of that was then you had the women's movement, women's liberation movement. All around the world, this was taking place, by the way. But in the United States, you had a left. So you had a genuine left. What do you have now as the left? And I'm talking a genuine left. What is your genuine left now in the United States? I want you to think about that question. And I want you to see if you can answer that question. I'll come back with my answer. And maybe you can think about yours right after this. Welcome back. So, did you have a chance to think about who or what the left is in the United States of America circa 2021 or beyond? Did you have a chance to ruminate on that for just a few short seconds during that brief interval? I did that because I dare say, and I would love your answers on a postcard, please. Maybe to this postcard, this electronic postcard. politocratpod at gmail.com. Politocratpod at gmail.com. Please, if you choose. See you play. But I think that there really isn't an America left at all now. And what we call left in 2021 or 22 or beyond is a corporate-driven left. And it's all generated, in my humble opinion, from corporate wealth and from the fact that one of the two political parties decided to join the other political party, the other of those two political parties, With the emphasis being on money, money, money. Fundraise, fundraise, fundraise. And less on raising money for people. The everyday person in the country. That's what the left is today. And Black Lives Matter is a left movement, I would say. And it's captured the consciousness of so-called mainstream America. But one thing that's happened with Black Lives Matter, which is not the live the fault of those who started it, Alicia Garza and the two other black women who, who co-founded, they've moved on to other pastures of their own. Alicia Garza is doing excellent work in her another organization, I believe, that she has. Um, and she's written a book or two as well, and she's doing very well, thank you very much. And and I, and I think she's a tremendous leader, as are the other two women. And I am sorry, I do not have your names to hand. But what has happened with Black Lives Matter now, and it's the same thing that I think happened to a lot of these organizations back in the 60s and 70s, is they got co-opted. And I think that it's not so much that Black Lives Matter has been co-opted. It is that the corporate entities... The corporate powers have uh, pulled, or I should say, stretched, stretched out its tentacles. The corporate entities have stretched out their own tentacles and put their grimy tentacles around Black Lives Matter and have tried to steer it and contour it in a corporate way. And I know, doesn't that sound so disgustingly filthily cynical of yours truly? Isn't that so disgusting of me? (laughs) To say that some corporate entities would do that. Isn't that the most cynical thing you've heard in the last three minutes from me? Well, I mean, these things happen. Now, one one person might say, well, no, look. Omar, this is is actually something that's reached the the public consciousness. This is actually a very good thing. It's not so much about the corporate entity doing anything. It's about this movement has finally hit the mainstream consciousness, a.k.a. the white consciousness. And now you've got people in the storefronts with signs that say Black Lives Matter on them. You've got people... Even though with some of those businesses, they're not hiring any black people, the black lives do not matter very much to them beyond the piece of paper they write those three words on. But what you do have, dear listener, is more people with signs in their windows saying black lives matter on them, signs on on their cars or that's a start. It's not nothing. It's better than nothing. But I think the concern I would have is the day to day practice of that sign and what the people who stick that sign in their window really do and how they really practice what their signs say or don't practice it. And so that's the thing that's of more interest to me than the sign being in a window. But I noticed and I have noticed that for the last year now in these United States of America. There's been a lot of emphasis in the corporate news media and I stopped watching it really. I've only watched once this year and that was when Joe Biden, President of the United States, had his town hall just last week. That's the only time this year I've watched anything to do with CNN or MSNBC. I've never, I've not looked at MSNBC at all in 2021. Oh, aren't I special? (laughs) I just can't go to any of... Of course, I don't watch Fox. You can forget it. I do not watch Fox News. And I just don't. I don't need to see what the so-called other side says about anything. These guys are liars. And, you know, you watch MSNBC, as I did last year, and it's as if you're watching DNC people interview each other. And it's really about a job interview to be in the next political position. That's what MSNBC is. MSNBC, and it may have some good people on it, and I know it does have some good people on the programming. I'm not knocking them. I'm knocking the decision makers. And I'm knocking the formats. And that's not really controlled to a vast degree by the hosts. But all I can tell you is, is, that it's like a prospective job interview for the next cabinet position in a Democratic administration. That's what MSNBC is. One day you see Ron Klain on your TVs on a thrice daily basis. And then maybe more than thrice. And then the next minute, he's the chief of staff in the White House. Uh, nothing like nothing happened. There's a seamless transition of power. Mr. Crane, all you have to do is uh, get on TV and show your FaceTime. Not that FaceTime, but your FaceTime on television. Gifted though you may be. Experienced though you may be. Lobbyist though you may be and are or were. And then, hey presto, in a few months time you can find yourself in an administration. Isn't that special? That's exactly what happens. So the corporate entities have really tried to contour the left and control it and speak language that has them controlling what the left, so-called left, is. And this term over the last year, let me get to this, this term over the last 12 months, systemic racism. And we've been talking about that in this country for centuries. And so did the Yippies and the uh, Black Panthers and Malcolm X and... Dr. King and Fannie Lou Hamer and Diane Nash and Rosa Parks and Barbara Jordan and Shirley Chisholm. And I could go on and on and on and you know it. And so this is not new, but the way that the corporate news media and these politicians now are talking about it, it's as if it's a new toy for them to play with. Seriously now, this is, it's, it's, it's a phenomena. Literally two years ago, two, dos, years ago, 2019, you wouldn't have heard those two words in any news broadcast, literally. And now it's talked about as if it's a drinking game. Systemic racism, systemic racism. Yes, of course, it's here. What are you going to do about it? But whenever you hear the term being used so openly and freely like this, you have to wonder: Is there something else going on? I mean, that is how cynical I've become, quite frankly. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I have, and in, 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 there is some. The cynicism is not all bad. There is something healthy about cynicism to a degree, but you cannot let it eat you alive, like a. Uh, sandwich or something or a cookie monster or something I don't know you don't want to be uh, the Sesame Street lunch for a blue puppet muppet character because that's where cynicism can really get you but cynicism I think is healthy to a degree I think it's very healthy you have an active engaged mind and you are questioning and you're skepticizing that's not a word is it (laughs) you were being skeptical. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, I think that that's what's happened. And this all started in the 1970s, really, in the mid-1970s. This lurch to the right, this dramatic lurch, was not just with Nixon getting away with murder and treason and, and all of that, and then Reagan later on doing it, and then Jerry Rubin of the Yippies, for God's sakes, the leader of the Yippies, Young International People's Party, I believe is the acronym for Yippies. Uh, the inter- that's the, the the you know the uh, name that the Yippie acronym is. You know, I mean Jerry Rubin became this businessman in the 1980s. This is a guy, he would have never been anywhere near that word. Speaking of a word not to use or a word that is used, he would never have said the word business before 1980, let alone I mean, my god. And he became a businessman. I think he was sold. I don't remember what his stock and trade was. But I'm telling you, and all of these baby boomers let us down. Except Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Except, you know, uh Maxine. You know, yeah, I can go through the whole list of people. Oh <laughs> uh, God. You know, it, it it's just incredible. And at the time, you know, Hillary Clinton for a year or two was a Goldwater girl, as she put it, supported Barry Goldwater. Briefly. There's a lot going on back then. That was your right wing. Your right in the 1960s was Nixon and Goldwater. And the Dixiecrats. Those were your, and that was your right. That was your, you know, your George Wallace's. Who was the who at one point was a part of the American Independence Party, which is this racist ass far right wing party that Kanye West was on the ticket of in 2020. That is the true story. But the point I'm trying to make is that this whole metamorphosis of a shift from or the death of or the funeral for the American left as it stood into the 1970s was brought about by these corporate entities, the desire to center business and the desire to redistribute the focus from the poor and the middle class to the upper classes and the corporate entities. This was the Powell Memo in 1971. Uh, Lewis B. Powell, who then became Nixon's nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court and then got on the Supreme Court of the U.S., i written a memo, I've talked about this many times on this podcast, about the need to have corporations be the center of American life. Business, American business must be the center of life. The lifeblood of this nation flows through business. The era of government and so-called big government distributing the wealth to all of these people on the bottom has got to end and we will do this, this and the other. In order to effectuate a transformation, a transformation of business, at the seat of power of government, and it worked because if you remember, well, I don't know if you're old, no, I I certainly wasn't around then. But when Calvin Coolidge talked about Calvin Coolidge way back when talked about the business of America being business, he absolutely meant it. He absolutely meant it with every fiber of his being. And once the nineteen Sixties came around and the tax bracket for the richest people was in the upper 90 percentile, 90 percent or so, 95. And then, I mean, it was in the 50s and 60s. The tax bracket against the rich was the highest it has ever been in this country called the U.S. of A. And it was literally in the high 90s. You had the richest people in the United States being taxed at a 90 percent plus rate and that was through Eisenhower's administration 50, 50 through 53 through 61 he got in in 52 he well he was re- he was elected in 52 reelected um after that in uh in in 56 and in both terms Richard Nixon was the vice president and I'm telling you this is the tax bracket was was much fit, much more equitable in this country and actually the rich were paying their fair share but that all changed somewhere in the 1970s with this Powell memo and everything else it was already a switch and by the time you got to the late 1970s the tax bracket was down around what 30% 35 Reagan I think it was 35 or so percent and then it dropped some more to 28% and a bit lower than that And where we are now, you know, I mean, and then the the rest of us, the working class, the middle class, and I guess the working poor as well, our taxes went up and the tax cuts for the rich kept coming and coming and coming. I mean, it was the the wealth got redistributed. And then you had companies that went from being these companies that really cared about the health and well-being of the company As through its employees, and that was how it value was measured in a corporation's profitability. And they it, I mean I remember the commercials, they prided themselves on parading the employees. Our workers are the stuff of gold, and uh, you know our company's only as good as its workers. And there was actual commercials, radio commercials on this, I think a few TV commercials too. And now that's all gone. Or as Ray Liotta was saying, good And now, it's all over. Because it is all over, isn't it? The tax cuts have absolutely been the benefit of the wealthiest classes in this country. Top 1 or 2%. There's no question about it. And I know people bristle some people at that language. When they hear top 1 or 2%, they hear all those terms that make them nauseous and revile and they say, oh, lefty, lefty, lefty. It's not about being a lefty. It's about the language that you are comfortable with or not comfortable with hearing. You're all well and good with certain language that's used. But when someone starts to talk about the top 1%, you bristle, some people do, bristle at it. And I think the reason why you, perhaps, or some people in the world, bristle at that and dismiss it as, oh, that's that commie, commie talk, that hippie talk that left this talk is because secretly every one of us wants to be in that top 1% not every one of us maybe lots of us and I think that's where some of that an- antagonism comes from because there isn't some rebellion against billionaires in this country because every damn person wants to be a billionaire everybody wants to be a billionaire don't you know I mean, that's what the culture's become and the culture's changed. So there was no left. Where was the left? The left had been decimated. The FBI, the COINTELPRO, Chicago police who murdered, murdered, executed Fred Hampton in his bedroom in 1969. You had all that stuff. That left was decimated. And there was not one that really came up in its place. What you had were the remnants of those baby boomers coming up and running in political circles and you had adam clayton powell the third. he was running or was it adam clayton powell jr adam clayton powell third, excuse me and he was one of the last people in congress who had that fervently left spirit and dennis kucinich later on and bernie later on but they're not the same kind of left as adam clayton powell even though bernie sanders could be said to be now just almost a contemporary of uh Adam Clayton Powell, the third, maybe not quite, but, and I know he was in the, he was in the movements. He got arrested in protesting segregated housing in Chicago and elsewhere. I get that, but even Bernie and and the rest of these folks now, even the the good people in the so-called squad, there is a corporatism about the whole way that business gets done that includes them too. I mean, it's funded by somebody and some organizations and by you and by me. But the, the rules, it's like what the Chambers brothers said with time has come today. The rules have changed today. I mean, they have. They've changed not just today, but over the last 50, 60 years. And so what you've had is this focus on wealth, the protection of billionaires The companies that used to espouse its worth in employees is now espousing its worth in how much money the CEO makes. So if the CEO makes 300, 400, 500 times or a thousand times what the average worker of that very same company is making, then that's looked at as a big success for the company. But it's only a success and a big success for one person, the CEO. So there's no longer this work-centered approach anymore by CEOs. It's all a me-centered approach. It's how much money did I make? How much profit did I make? And the workers don't get any raise of any meaningful amount, stagnant, stagnant wages, while the CEOs keep getting billions and billions of dollars in bonuses alone. Where's the left? The left has been sedated and crunched and crashed, bloodied and bruised, and RIP circa 1975 or so. The American left is dead. Come on now. What left do we really have left in the United States? I've actually got a second answer for that in this final segment coming up right after this. Welcome back. So, I mean, the other left is is pretty easy. I mean, and before I even get to that, though, the Democratic Party was one of those two parties that decided to join the corporate bandwagon. And and that's where the left is. It's corporate. That's my whole point. It's all corporate right now. And you really have a, uh, I hate to admit this, but it's the truth, a center-right-to-right country. And the United States has always been, I think, the mentality of the country has always been libertarian all always has been after the Native Americans were genocided and murdered that after that it was it became a libertarian country after white men came in and to, completely um, destroyed Native American life, destroyed the people the culture or well, not all of the culture but a lot of it and just controlled their land and murdered millions I mean countless hundreds of thousands of people were genocided native people and they, I'm telling you this country has been f- strenuously libertarian and has gone right all the way through pretty much even except for that interruption in the late uh, 1950s through the 60s into the 70s and there have been some pockets here and there of course along the way you know, before Reconstruction and the rebellions, Nat Turner in the 1800s, I think 1834, 18-something or other, um, the enslavement rebellion by Nat Turner and other enslavement rebellions. The Nat Turner rebellion was in in uh, in Virginia, I believe, in West Virginia or Virginia, I think it's Virginia. But the point is, in all of this, is that the country has been, especially if you look at 1970s, late mid-late 70s on, has been... A center right to right wing country, libertarian, leaning that way. And certainly the last four years, certainly in 1980s with Reagan, the decimation of education in this country. Where is that left now? Like the, the Black Panthers, who would be standing up right now, demonstrating all over the country and saying we need to do this, this, this and this. Where is that left now? There are groups, there are packs there's this, there's that. But where is that left that would be on mass out there? And I know there's the Women's March, but it's not the same. This is the Black Panthers doing it. They're doing this every single day, every single day. They were doing this in the 60s. They were feeding people. They were doing all kinds of things. And I know there's groups, but it's not the same. There is a corporate thing here going on still. And until that Loosens his grip. We're still gonna be in, in where we are now, speaking this peculiar language about, oh, defund the police is a horrible thing to say. I saw someone in San Francisco there in their window, not them, but I saw a sign in their window that said defund the police. This was just yesterday. Well, I took a walk. It was a gorgeous day. Gorgeous day. And just yesterday I saw that sign. Defund the police may have been the day before, actually. I don't even remember now. The days are just all one. And, yeah, you know, and you've got black politicians now saying this stuff. And these are the same politicians that Malcolm X was talking about. These Negro politicians and it's what Malcolm was talking about. And I'm sorry, but it's the truth. I'm not going to mention names. I think you know who they are. Some of the, those Negro politicians that Malcolm referred to are here now in 2021 and beyond. Telling you that saying something like defund the police is so wrong. It's so wrong. This is the kind of stuff that the Black Panthers were basically saying in the 60s. We don't need those pigs around here. No, my voice is not suitable to reenact. But you get the drift, dear listener. The language we're speaking now is a... It's a poor, poor language, isn't it? It's a pathetic language. It goes back to the hosting I did for that uh, forum I did, uh, the Zoom forum I was in, the Mechanics Institute a couple of weeks ago that I devoted the whole episode to with the actual full conversation. When you're asked these questions and the questions are coming, and they may be genuine questions of inquiry, but you're question is about the language and why it's offensive and that question i think again comes because you are so used to certain language like race card which is such an evil term and i've explained that before like cancel culture think about who it is that invents that kind of language what is a cancel culture i know what it operatively means in the gist of the Word, But what the F does that mean? Cancel. Think about what we we casually throw these words around. But do we think about what the words mean or do we think about what we're saying and how we sound when we say it? And I think that's also down to a lack of critical thinking, not not your lack of critical thinking, not mine, but a lack of it in the society. Because there's no left pushing back on that now either, really. I mean, there isn't. Because the education system's been decimated. Reagan really helped with that. There's been a defunding of education. If you were to point out to some of these politicians that education has been defunded, would they get upset at you? Or would they agree? I think where what I, where I want to really get to here Because Reagan has really brought us to this place. Not Trump, Reagan. There would be no Trump without Reagan. This is not about Obama. And I just, again, the language we talk in. Because a system that oppresses is creating language like cancel culture. Is creating language like race card. Is creating language like Like, What the hell is that? (laughs) You can tell I do not like that because I've talked about it before. What I am trying to say here, what I am trying to articulate in this moment is that the new left is this generation that's coming up. That is who the new left is. It is the Vanessa Nicates. It is the Greta Thunberg's. It is. the reinvigorated Black Lives Matter movement. It is the representative Corey Bushes, who really is not there to make up the numbers in Congress, despite what I've said about the corporate structure that undergirds the squad and all of these people in Congress, including obviously Speaker Pelosi, who is from money, married into it or, and from it, and everybody, and Steny Hoyer, and all the rest of these people who are all millionaires. I mean, that wouldn't have happened in the 1960s and 70s. Millionaire politicians, really? I mean, some of them may have had wealth. I mean, the Kennedys had wealth. The Roosevelt's had wealth. FDR had wealth. Nelson Rockefeller, he had wealth. But you wouldn't have 500 politicians or 535 of them in Congress And about, you know, a good 100 to 200 of them are millionaires. And you've got to look at that. Why is that happening? And it's this wealth industry that's being created in and amongst the powerful. And I said this over and over. The punditry. Oh, I'm coming across as an activist. It's this whole pseudo-activist world, right? That's cultivated around a corporate structure and entity and it manifests itself in these pundits, in some of these politicians, in some of the news commentators. Oh, I'm coming across as a lefty. I'm coming across as a lefty and you know who I'm talking about. Bill Maher. I got something caught in my throat. And others, uh, rhymes with Hayes. Oh, I'm so progressive. What does that mean? What does the word progressive mean? Well, I know what it means. I think Senator Warren perhaps escapes my scrutiny because I think she's genuine, although a lot of people would say to you, she is not genuine. She's not a real progressive. Maybe she is, maybe she's not. But she is sure going after the very entities that I'm talking about. Those big banks and all the the people that did all this stuff. And the Powell Memo ilk, that group, the ilk that were behind all that, too, of Lewis Powell, she's going after them. So she can't be that bad, at least not on that score. And then there's this restlessness amongst some of us. Oh, left. Gnashing our teeth at the left. And this, there's actually plenty to gnash at, I dare add. However... this language that we're speaking, this language we're thinking in, social media engenders more of this culture where you've got all these rich people dictating to you what the trending topic is, telling you what to think. Oh, some people are concerned that somebody forgot to put on both his socks this morning. Some people on Twitter are uh, causing, uh, are are concerned about the fact that Someone's walking around and forgot to put on their underwear. Or some people are concerned and discussing what's going on between this rapper and the person who he or she is seeking a divorce from. I mean, that's where your dialogue is in 2021. That's your discourse. The dumbing down of America. The dumbing down of America through iPhones, through the internet through social media especially social media and then you get the nazis that never left like the trumps right and all these other nazis that stormed the capital and in a terrorist attack last month uh, you know in january 6 2021 and then you get all these other and then you wonder how they managed to resurface well they never left is your answer the daily double answer On your Jeopardy card. Or your bingo card or something. This is what's going on, dear listener. And I know you know this. But the new left has to be us. If if you are someone listening to this right now. To me right now. And you are pro-choice. Pro-peace. Anti-war. Anti-fascist. Anti-racist. Women's, pro-women's rights, anti-misogynist, anti-misogynoir, anti-war, pro-families, pro-freedom, pro-reproductive freedom, pro-worker, you're part of the new left. The question becomes, what kinds of things are you doing in the spirit of that new left Social media is one thing and yes, it has its place. Look, heck, I'm on it at the popcorn, R-E-E-L. But what else are we doing? Are we going to be the next young lords? And it's not even a question of being them, although I just asked the question that way. How are we acting to redirect the imbalance so that there is a more leveling off playing field so that you have people who are making under $100,000 a year benefiting more and that you don't have to wait two bluen months for a stimulus check or for something else or you don't have to have your whole fate determined by some negotiations amongst billionaires and millionaires on Capitol Hill as to whether or not you're going to have your own unemployment benefits, extended or not. There is no debating and deliberating on tax cuts, really. I mean, yeah, there's a few, but everybody knows where the story's going to end on that. The billionaires and millionaires are not sitting with bated breath, wondering, cold sweats in the middle of the night, about whether or not their tax cut is going to be passed or not. It's a basic automatic, like the Pointer Sisters. That they're going to have their tax cut. As they did during Trump's. Piece of crap. Administration. That reflects who he is. There's at least two or three tax cuts. If not more. During his tenure. The swamp figure that he is and was. The new left. Must be us. And. This younger generation. That's coming up Now. Is that left? Every 80 years or so, or maybe a little less, maybe a little more. There is a group of people who said enough. Our futures depend on a better climate. Our futures, our existences depend on a better environment, depend on a stronger education system, depends on more immigration, depends on criminal justice reform and all these things. And we're fed up to the eye teeth of these adults, these baby boomers who are screwing it up for the rest of us. And now that you had your fun in the 50s and 60s, you want to F it up for the rest of us and we are not taking it. That's the posture that you're getting from this younger generation. Get out my way. I'm going to do something here. I mean, there's been Occupy Wall Street, but look what happened to that. Squelched. Black Lives Matter is really the only viable mass movement at the very moment. Viable meaning it's the one that's continuing to go, keep going. And Me Too movement is different though, because that seems to focus more on the powerful or people who have experiences, very toxic ones with powerful men. And uh, I point you to Lindsay... Bowen, who ran um, for office in New York, I believe she ran for governor at one point, I think, or definitely ran for a New York office. And I, we follow each other on Twitter, full disclosure. She just yesterday released a, and I'm going to link to it, an article at Medium where she wrote about her experiences working for a New York state governor, Andrew Cuomo, who is an absolute piece of dung. And I won't say anything more about the detail of the article. I won't say anything about it. You have to read it. This guy is lionized when he shouldn't be. And that's what happens in a culture like this that applauds criminality and interviews criminality and racists and misogynists and people who abuse and rape. They interview them every day on these corporate news networks. And like Malcolm X said, you you'll you'll the media will have you loving your enemies and hating your friends. I mean, that's essentially what you're seeing. And I don't even watch this stuff anymore. I know that's what's happening. But the new left is us. And the new left is really this new generation that is not taking any BS from anybody. The under 30s who have had enough of our ineptitude and we sometimes think we are better than what we are when it comes to some of this stuff. And the younger generation sees right through it and sees right through us. So if there is any left that can be revived, it really is going to be up to us, but it's really the, the younger generation right now that's already assuming the position, if you will, and is starting to do things. But we've got to support them, not Wag our fingers and say. When I was your age. That way. Madness and arrogance lies. I think I'm going to come back to this again. In the future. In a subsequent episode sometime. I think. Do you think that. The squad represents a new left. Or are they part of the corporate umbrella or is the corporate umbrella pushing them too because I've already made my case as to why I think well I do think the corporates are part of them not them consciously but it's the cost of doing business is that whether they want this or not and I don't think they do it's that that's the system that they're in and it's a whole new ball game baby when you get to Congress, you can talk all that dashiki and black power you want. And I love dashikis, and I love black power. The idea of black political power and empowerment and self-determination. Nothing wrong with any of those. I'm proud of those. Right? But once you get into Congress, the rules have changed today. But the voices must be louder and clearer than ever before. And Representative Cory Bush is one of those voices, by the way. She's not seeking publicity. The publicity comes to her, if at all. But the new left in America must start now. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It's all happening at the ThePolitocrat.com daily podcast online store and you can go there right now at the-politocrat.myshopify.com. Lots of good new items, brand new, designed by yours truly. So please head to the Politocrat daily podcast online store now. Thank you very much.